It is Tuesday, November 21st, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, the U.S. Senate is working across the aisle to combat the global food security crisis. Agriculture is very bipartisan. It's about regions of the country and different crops, but it's, it's Republicans and Democrats working together to take care of making sure that we continue to have this great, cheap, healthy food supply. Plus, the cost of war on people and the environment. Because of the war, I mean, all the universities and research institutions, they have been affected, and also the natural environment has been destroyed. A spotlight on scholars at risk and documenting the beauty and deforestation of the Amazon rainforest at the momentary. The biomass, just the teeming biodiversity in a, in a few square inches on the forest floor, how much life the rainforest holds, what we stand to lose. First up, this hour's news from NPR. The Ozark Society is a regional conservation organization known for saving the Buffalo National River from being dammed. Members across the state who love rivers and wild lands hike, volunteer, and work toward a common goal of keeping the natural state natural. Information on memberships at ozarksociety.net. Rave Cultural Foundation presents Natyam, a community showcase of traditional Indian dance, December 3rd at 3 p.m. at the Kalaloka Institute of Fine Arts. Natyam is an effort by Rave to support and nurture local dancing talents in northwest Arkansas. It's open to the public, but registration is required. More at ra-veculturalfoundation.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday. November 21st, 2023, I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, produced from the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville. Ahead today, there is something for all of the senses included in Enduring Amazon, Life and Afterlife in the Amazon Rainforest at the Momentary in Bentonville. First up, Bipartisan legislation in the U.S. Senate is being introduced to combat the global food security crisis. Arkansas Senator John Bozeman is one of the supporters of the bill. Matthew spoke to the senator on the phone recently, and he says recent statistics show there are 345 million people who are facing acute hunger right now. And the, the scary thing about that is that in t- 2020, uh, the number was only half of that. Some of that is man-made. Some of it's climate. Some regions simply don't do a very good job, though, of producing the food that they could produce. So that's really what we want to attack is is taking those regions. These are fertile areas that, that just need some help, basic uh, understanding of how you, you, you can produce crops in a much more productive way, still respecting, you know, the local uh, economy and things like that, protecting the in essence, the family farmer, but making them more productive. So what this does is establish a partnership between uh, the government and private entity. It's a great example of a good nonprofit working with the government so that we can actually accomplish this. USAID does a, a good job, but they simply are not very good at doing this. So this is really what that's all about is just creating a nonprofit, putting some government money in, putting uh, money in from the private sector, and then uh, establishing a mechanism where you have metrics, making it such that you have a lot of accountability. Uh, it would choose about 10 countries, and, uh, and then, again, measuring their progress. 
this is a way to to not just throw money at the problem. This is a way to actually, you know, make a huge difference and really solve a problem that I think is very solvable. The war in Ukraine, I'm sure, has played a major role in the movement of foods internationally. I know that towards the beginning of the war, we heard a lot of talk about grains moving from uh, that that area to areas of Africa and, and places that really depend on uh, the movement of food internationally. And I'm sure the war in Gaza is playing a role in this as well. How has these international conflicts kind of changed perhaps the pace that you're thinking about this sort of legislation? Well, the war in Ukraine has has made a tremendous difference. Ukraine is is one of the breadbaskets of the world, but certainly of that whole region of of the world. They produce about 30% of the grain, you know, much of the cooking oil, 80% or so worldwide. They are somebody that, that when you take them offline, it makes a huge difference. And the Russians are working very hard to take them off, somewhat weaponizing you know, food is a weapon, but more so they want to wreck the Ukrainian economy. And if the Ukrainians aren't producing food and selling it, they, they essentially have no economy. Russia's economy is based on oil. Uh, Ukraine's is based on, uh, on food production. So this is really what that's all about, is wrecking the Ukrainian economy. The other thing that's happened is, is that the Russians have been able to be more productive and sell more, so it's actually helped their economy a little bit. So because of that, uh, particularly as you mentioned, the countries in Africa uh, will really suffer, are suffering. The other problem that we have is that a lot of the countries have been uh, through uh, dealing with China, other countries that are very, very heavily indebted. And now we see interest rates rise because of their indebtedness, massive indebtedness, their currency is not worth anything. And so not only is the food that they're buying more expensive as it is worldwide, we can see that. We're blessed. We have uh, you know, the cheapest, safest food supply of any place in the world. But we can see it's gone up dramatically. Well, the same thing has has gone up in the rest of the world, even more so. And so these countries are paying much, much more. And besides that, again, their currency is not worth anything. I imagine your involvement with the Ag Committee plays a critical role in your involvement in this legislation. How do you see the translation between the work that's being done domestically here in the U.S. translating to an international space? I think that's really a good, you know, really a great question, Matt, in the sense that, you know, you look back and it's not that many years that that, uh, that uh, American agriculture was subsistence agriculture. You had, you know, farmers were barely able to eke out a living. A living. We weren't very productive. But we're so proud in the sense that uh, America really has stepped up. We the inputs, the amount of fertilizer, the amount of uh, insecticides, all of those kind of things, those kind of inputs have stayed actually maybe even reduced a little bit, but our productivity per acre is just off the chart. And it doesn't matter if you're, you're measuring milk production, broiler capacity, or, or you know just our traditional farming of grains. Uh, you know our productivity is, is really the wonder of the world. So. We need to, to help these developing countries to, to basically just, it starts with things like seed varieties, making sure that they have seed varieties that are up to date now. Many of these countries, I was in Ghana, and they were using seed varieties back uh, to the turn of the last century. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. 
So just just some there's there's a lot of low hanging fruit out there that that our farmers who have become so productive their their fathers and grandfathers were doing many of the same practices. So you don't you don't need to bring in a bunch of uh, tractors and things like that in these remote areas. There's lots of different ways that we could do to though to make a huge impact uh, with helping them think in a little bit different way of uh, production. This legislation is bipartisan, and with all of the frustration we've seen across Congress between the two parties, it feels significant that this is bipartisan legislation. No, it is, It is, Matt. And we're really, with I'm a co-chair of the Hunger Caucus in the Senate. The nice thing about the food issues is they really are very bipartisan. Agriculture is very bipartisan. It's about regions of the country and different crops, but it's it's Republicans and Democrats working together to take care of making sure that we continue to have this great, cheap, healthy food supply. But this is something that, that again, I'm very proud of also. But it's, it's just uh, a way to come together, not only with Democrats and Republicans coming together, but also the government coming together with the private sector to really deal with a problem that, that I think, is, you know, uh, we're not going to completely eliminate these problems, but we can make a big dent in As I think about Arkansas, I know so much of the economy is based around agriculture, whether it's, as you've said, it's, it's dairy farming. I actually have some family who uh, work in the dairy farms in Arkansas and, and folks in rice and folks in grains. And, and, you know, there's a lot of institutional knowledge that is held here in Arkansas. Do you hope that that sort of knowledge and specifically with the roots here in Arkansas and your capacity in this act can kind of help to spread that knowledge and help to really fortify the way that food is grown and manufactured and and spread internationally? No, very much so. And we are so blessed with having, uh, you know, so many experts in agriculture. It's 25% of our economy. It's number one. If you get outside of any town of any size, it's not 25%. It's probably 85 or 90%. So, yeah, it, it is huge. But also we're blessed with smart farmers, productive farmers. We also have the, the infrastructure with our land-grant institution, the University of Arkansas, and several other colleges and universities in Arkansas that have stepped up with great uh, programs regarding research, making us more productive. In fact, I was we've been doing a lot of listening tours in, in preparation for uh, the final production of the Farm Bill, and I was in Florida. Every uh, farm that we stopped at when we were visiting with the farmers, they had some uh, berry variety that was actually produced at the University of Arkansas through their research. So, you know, these, yeah, we we, we don't have to back up to anybody. Uh, we just, we have a lot of great programs. And then again, a lot of great producers that have used that, used that good research that's come out to make them so much more productive. We want to do the same thing as is used through, consultation and research to make farmers uh, in these these areas of the world that desperately need it much more productive. It's funny because I think there tends to be a stereotype between, uh, there's this divide between farmers being, you know, folks who did not pursue higher education are not necessarily quote-unquote smart people, and this divide between academia, and I think 
as you're talking about here in Arkansas, there's a really wonderful intersection between the research that's happening and the farmers. And that stereotype is really broken here in this state. Yeah, it is very much. And, and really to be a farmer and, and, and be a farmer that is able to actually continue farming, uh, you've got to have skills uh, in all kinds of different ways. You've got to understand the various programs. Uh, these forms that you fill out are very, very difficult. So you've got all that to, to contend with, maybe too much. We need to, to cut the paperwork. But also the equipment. I mean, you know, just the ability to to use just the right amount. You know, we talk about the, the, the climate. We talk about the environment, keeping our our uh, our water quality you know uh, you know in in really good shape keeping our soils in good shape all of that is to the farmers advantage it helps their bottom line and so they are very very educated in those areas and uh not only are educated but but are good about using that education to follow through uh, so that they can uh, continue to be productive but also uh, are great stewards of the uh, the land and the uh, the water Senator Bozeman, I really appreciate your time on this. Thanks for, uh, thanks for talking with me. No, thank you so much. Arkansas U.S. Senator John Bozeman. We spoke over the phone earlier this month. Ahead today, a new exhibit at the Momentary in Bentonville explores the Amazon rainforest. How can you find a lens wide enough, you know? And, and the processes themselves are so abstract. And so their climate change itself, global heating. We can't see these with the human eye. That's later on today's Ozarks at Large. A three-judge panel of the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals on Monday ruled only the U.S. Attorney General can bring a lawsuit under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Most cases brought under Section 2 came from individuals and groups. Those lawsuits challenged redrawn district maps, which limited the influence of people of color. A lawsuit had been brought by several Arkansans seeking to overturn the state's 2021 redistricting plan. Representatives from the ACLU, the NAACP, and the Arkansas Public Policy Panel released a joint statement yesterday calling the decision deeply troubling and that the decision is a devastating blow to the civil rights of every American. The case could still be heard by the full Eighth Circuit and could go as high as the U.S. Supreme Court. The Beaver Watershed Alliance and the town of Elkins are collaborating on a federal grant project to restore Bunch Park. The park is on the east fork of the White River and was once a wet prairie that worked to control floodwaters. Becky Roark is executive director of Beaver Watershed Alliance, and she says it's a bit of an unknown park for some. It's a quaint little park. They have playgrounds, lots of active um, recreation going on there, people fishing, putting their boats in and things. It's the only park in Elkins, too, so it's a really important space for for the city. The Alliance is providing $95,000 for design and implementation. Rourke says the Alliance will work with Elkins Parks Department to restore Native Prairie and build public trails for birding and wildlife viewing. We also hope this will be a, a great training ground for landowners to come and learn how to do these conversions on their own landscapes. So they can learn to burn, they can learn how to um, you know, reduce the Bermuda and fescue and transition to more of your prairie grasses and prairie plants. Elkins Park Committee Chair Stephanie Cohen says in a press release, the project will enhance the city's public park while additionally showcasing examples of sustainable growth that benefit all of us through low-impact development. 
This is Ozarks at Large. International Education Week was observed on college campuses around the country last week, including the University of Arkansas. For several years, a collection of campus organizations has used part of International Education Week to place a focus on scholars and artists who happen to be at risk around the world. This year, that spotlight included a moderated discussion about the human and environmental costs of war. Guests on the panel included Salman al-Shami, a Yemeni entomologist who was visiting the University of Arkansas as a guest of Scholars at Risk program. Uchenna Awoke, a novelist who fled violence in his native Nigeria, who is an Artist Protection Fellow, and the inaugural Arkansas International Writer at Risk, and Allison Russo, Senior Director, Artist Protection Fund. We invited them, along with panel moderator Padma Viswanathan, to the Furman Garner Performance Studio last week. We'll hear first from Uchenna and Salman. I asked Uchenna who's been living and writing in Fayetteville for about eight months now, what it's meant for him to be able to have security and some peace of mind to write. Yeah, I have so much to say. Uh, but I'm going to sum it up in, 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 a, in, in a few lines. Yeah. Um, the award of uh, Artist Protection Fund and I can say international uh, residency is the best thing to happen to me as a writer. Yeah. Um, best thing in terms of uh, uh, the conflicts in my home country, Nigeria. Best thing in terms of my underprivileged background. Best thing in terms of uh, my growth as a writer, as a soft, self-taught writer. Yeah. I. I have received fellowships from McDowell and the Vermont Studio Center that lasted for four, five weeks. But one year Artist Protection Fund and uh, Icons International uh, Right at Risk Fellowship that, that has been extended. It has been extended. You know, giving me one, one and a half years of, of sanctuary of peace, of writing time, in the congeniality of Fedville. It is something special. It is really something special, yeah. What can that peace, what can that sanctuary mean for an artist? It means everything for an artist. You have to have your peace of mind before you can write. You cannot write in, 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 in an atmosphere of chaos like we have in my country. I had stopped writing before this fellowship came. So it was a lifeline. Yes. That the same for science, entomology? Uh, yeah. Uh, I came from Yemen and they started in 2015 to have a war and there are so many airstrikes and I mean more than 18 million people, they have been displaced from their homes and of course, because of the war, I mean, all the universities and research institutions, they have been affected, and uh, also the natural environment has been destroyed, and also there are so many environmental pollution problems that cannot be resolved, and also, in addition to that, there is some water crisis, and the people, they don't have access to a clean water. That it was, for example, in 2017, the people uh, there was a cholera outbreak, and it was more than 13,000 people have been affected, mostly children. And I think the uh, the people, uh, 
there is no official statistics how many people died but uh, they said like every 10 minutes one child under five years will be die because of preventable disease i mean uh, preventable disease so uh, having the resources to conduct the research especially uh, related to in the environmental issue it's become so difficult after I would say after 2011 of the Arab Spring and start all of this chaos in the in the area so it affected also the I mean the researchers themselves because most of them about like eight years they didn't receive any salary from the government and the government they just use all the resources for I mean to find something else but not caring about the people and also about the research and uh, the people they don't have also access to a fuel let's say for cooking that's why they start logging the the, the trees and that that's causing something irreversible problems to the natural biodiversity so uh, it's all related i mean all the problems are related together relating to the environmental pollutions i mean uh, the oil pollution is one of the, the the most critical issues because releasing of hydrocarbons and also the heavy metals that contaminated the water and also the soil cells there is an increasing number of cancer cases that have been diagnosed in Yemen recently I mean, one of my examples is just my brother. He was diagnosed with cancer like three years ago, and he never smoked. He was just living healthy, but I would believe because of the environment itself. So there are so many environmental issues that directly related, and I would say is the impact of the war. It's the direct impact of the war. It's not just only for the quality of the life for the people, but also for the natural resources. Because once we lose like one of these resources, we cannot replace them. Salman Al-Shami, a Yemeni entomologist visiting the University of Arkansas last week as a guest of the University of Arkansas's Scholar at Risk program. We also heard from Uchenna Awoke, a novelist who left violence in Nigeria. Uchenna has spent eight months in Fayetteville as an Artist Protection Fund fellow. And last week, Allison Russo, Senior Director, Artist Protection Fund, also visited our studios. She says the opportunity for Salman and Uchenna to speak about their experiences shows the need for more visibility. And community and collaboration. Um, obviously, as the director of the Artist Protection Fund, my focus is on artists. I, I consider them the canaries in the coal mine. Uh, there are myriad crises going on around the world right now. Um, we probably could, on, not on both hands, count the circumstance. Uh, for an artist like Uchenna, he described beautifully the opportunity to collaborate, to be in community, to bring visibility, but through the personal engagement, obviously scholars and artists, this work has been around. Um, but I think what uh, the our focus on the artist has done is provided an opportunity for direct um, collaboration because an artist brings their voice and vision from their circumstance but they also are impacted by this now new environment they're they're not just telling their stories through their work they're sharing and communicating with us I always say to all of our artists and the Artist Protection Fund um, supports not only writers visual artists performance practice artists 
um, musicians, composers. So we work with artists across Metier from spots and around the world and place them at host institutions around the world, not just in the United States. But I think at the core structure of much of this work, and certainly the Artist Protection Fund work, is to build these communities. These, these collaborations are intense. They require a lot of detail. Um, there's a, an, an effort made by the mentor team like Padma here to build the spaces that we need um, the artists to. They arrive with, without knowing. I always say it's a great leap of faith. They trust the program. And it really is always remarkable. It's moving to me that they put the trust in the program. So the program has to build these communities wherever they are in the world. And I think for your audience, it's really understanding that artists, thought leaders, scholars from these spaces are grappling with similar issues that we're thinking about here, although we may not be directly affected by them. We're affected by other enormous causes and challenges and it's in this dialogue that we lessen the gap that we understand that we are connected to one another and you know obviously I'm I my focus is on the art world and artists and they are a direct mirror for us through their work whether it's in their writing whether it's in their songs whether it's in their visual arts performance practice pieces theater engagement and to lose that is to lose a part of uh, the fabric that ties us all together. Padma Viswanathan, creative writing professor at the University of Arkansas, moderated the panel discussion last week. She says it's important for people to have a chance to hear visiting artists and scholars who are at risk. As I was listening to Uchenna and Salman speak, I was thinking about the paucity of information that we have on conflicts around the world. You know, just right now, the tragic circumstances in Gaza have pushed Ukraine and Russia off of the headlines, which itself had pushed other conflicts, you know, further down in our news feeds. And so for us here in Fayetteville to get to meet this writer and this scholar who are working very specifically to illuminate we could say local conflicts, but local conflicts that are emblematic of, of many others and to illuminate the human costs of those. This is what both of them are going to be speaking about this afternoon. I think these encounters allow us to understand these conflicts in a new way to, to get a personal perspective on them is also to have a different political perspective on them, right? Um, and because each of these is also, while it's a local conflict, they shed light on regional conflicts and also on American involvements in, in these conflicts around the world, which otherwise, it can just be really hard to know how to start to learn about these things. Padma and others at the University of Arkansas had for years discussed being able to host artists at risk. From the moment I landed here, I thought it could be an ideal setting for an, a writer at risk in their home nation because this place is so... Um, I mean, I, I was saying to Allison yesterday, there's a very high density of interesting people in Fayetteville. It's a very literary town. I met one of my best friends because we somehow struck up a conversation about Proust at the playground. Like, it's become kind of legendary between us, but that's the kind of conversation you can have here quite effortlessly in our public spaces. And the idea that Uchenna would come here, and, and Uchenna's an amazing writer. I, I, I'm not... 
I wouldn't consider that I'm mentoring his writing so closely. I feel like I'm observing it at close hand. I have the privilege to watch his his new work now unfold. I'm going to be observing, uh, you know, a, a close witness to the release of his first novel next summer. It's all such a, a privilege for me, and also that he's become part of our friend circle here, you know, which includes other scholars and actors and poets and um, other people who are curious about him and and his work and want to be, again, literary friends. It's been such an honor. Alison Russo says the Artist Protection Fund has been in operation for eight years. She says the ability to aid artists in danger, to find a safer place to live, is a complicated process. Artists through not only their own knowledge base, and obviously we're connected through not only academic institutions, cultural spaces, arts organizations, small residency programs on the ground. As I said, artists are in there, although they aren't um, often in places in the world supported at the levels that they should be, they're engaging with what's happening in their communities. So artists can find us directly. Um, various host institutions that we know, a good example is Padma, who, who had found out about us and was interested, had been aware of the scholar support work, but then uh, as, a, as an artist herself was like, wait a minute, maybe I can pivot. Um, it's a, as Chana can, can attest to, it's a long process because we get, we get hundreds of applications. We obviously can't support them Sadly. all. Sadly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the portfolios can be wildly different. You can imagine a portfolio of application from a writer is uniquely different from a performance practice artist from Bangladesh, for example, or a Yemeni filmmaker. Uh, it goes through a rigorous process of evaluation. Uh, I have an amazing selection committee of experts, academicians, art world leaders. And then once awarded, this is the linchpin, it's pending placement. So the award is an achievement in and of itself but it's really the collaborative placements that we want to engage in. So uh, it's not simply they go to a website and say, what's available for threatened artists? Because these artists are at the forefront. They have often fled to second and third countries. There's complicated uh, visa issues at play. Um, So we can think about it from 10,000 feet, which is an artist at risk, and then we get to how state departments effectively are at the core structure of what we're trying to do to legally have artists have temporary visas to come to have these opportunities. Uchenna Awoka says the work of the Artist Protection Fund has been a literal lifesaver for him, allowing him to ride in Fayetteville after leaving Nigeria. We didn't really know what, what was happening until the next day when we learned that the attack was carried out by over 50 armed militia believed to be flanny herders. We were told that they came in the middle of the night, surrounded and set fire to houses, and waited to, with deadly weapons to finish off those who, who, who have bound, have fled. So when you are from such a place, and then you find yourself in a place like Fedville, with a mentor like Padma, as an artist protection fund fellow, with a mentor like Alison Russo, who constantly checks in on you, with wonderful friends who are eager to, to help in, in, in everywhere, with access to, to books of your choice, the Fedway Public Library, the University Library, with 
all the time in the world to write. And most importantly, and you have the peace of mind. I can beat my chest and say that the quality of my writing has changed. It has improved tremendously. Uchenna Awoke, Salman Al-Shami, Alison Russo, and Padma Viswanathan were in the Furman Garner Performance Studio last week before they participated in a panel discussion for International Education Week on the University of Arkansas campus. This is Ozarks at Large. is a revised momentary in downtown Bentonville. The museum, an extension of Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, unveiled its latest exhibition this weekend, Enduring Amazon, Life and Afterlife in the Amazon Rainforest. It's also part of a remodel. Momentary director Joe Wager says the changes reflect a more welcoming environment while remaining a showcase to be a reflection of music, art, and food of our time. She says Enduring Amazon meets the contemporary criteria. Enduring Amazon is a really immersively beautiful exhibition. It is a treat for all of your senses. That all senses included approach is on full display in a gallery where two large screens show a 75-minute film offering high-definition images of rainforest trees being cut down as well as rainforest life. The film by Richard Moss, with soundtrack created by Ben Frost, is a 75-minute survey of deforestation of the rainforest, examples of rainforest life, and a closed caption appeal from an indigenous woman pleading for the outside world to take note of how the rainforest is being altered. Richard Moss also contributes multicolored, large photographs taken by drone that start the tour through Enduring Amazon. At a preview of the work last week, he told reporters he spent close to five years in the field collecting these images. He says trying to understand the rainforest and the processes unfolding across it are difficult. The Amazon rainforest is the largest tropical rainforest in the world, covering parts of nine countries. How can you find a lens wide enough, you know? And, and the processes themselves are so abstract. And so their climate change itself, global heating, we can't see these with the human eye. And so how do we take a picture of them? Photography is so inherently concrete. Uh, at the same time, the deforestation is so normalized and so widespread, it's everywhere. You've seen one picture of the burning rainforest, you've seen them all. Ma says he wasn't interested in capturing already saturated images. So he employed drones and geographic information systems to show images from above. The result is a wide spectrum of vivid colors highlighting the natural world, but also illegal gold mines, polluted rivers, and large-scale sawmills. The show itself is full of tensions. Um, the, the beauty of trying to show, show us, you know, to really show us that, and also not just in these rooms, but in the film and, 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 and after that, pictures of, of, from the forest floor of, of uh, orchids and plant life, the biomass, just the teeming biodiversity in a, in a few square inches on the forest floor, how much life the rainforest holds, what we stand to lose. Ma says he wanted his work to portray the complex challenges facing the rainforest and the people who live there. And only three days before I made this map, um, 
the IBAMA, the Environmental Protection Agency, came with military support and raided all these mills and, and, and slapped uh, fines on them. And so they were very uh, jittery. So I had to hide in some bamboo up there with my boat and fly the drone. Um, but you could see it's a very interesting what the, what the maps reveal. You can see here's a luxury villa, right? So all the profit, you know, it goes to these, these you know, people who live in these villas. And probably a lot of the guys working in these places don't get a whole lot, you know? And of course, those fines were never paid because it was President Jair Bolsonaro was president at the time, and they just ignored those fines. But Ma says he also wants to remind us that almost all of us are playing some part in what's happening in the rainforest. At last week's preview, he was standing just outside the gallery showing his film. You'll hear part of the soundtrack as he talks. And he explained that cattle farming accounts for about 80% of the deforestation. The cheap beef in Burger King burgers, the leather in our cars... I am equally complicit. I, I still eat red meat. I still, you know, wear leather. Uh, so I, I want us to feel that complicity. Each, each first ourselves to feel implicated in these processes and, and to feel our agency as consumers and as citizens to understand that we have power over these processes. And the processes are vast in scale and they're moving quickly, you know. And within our lifetime, you know, we'll see. For example, in 1970, we lost only 1% of the, of the rainforest. Today, we've lost about 18 to 20% of the forest. That's in 50 years, the span of a human life. So, you know, in another 50 years, you know, we might, we might lose a significant amount more because these processes are exponential. Enduring Amazon isn't just the still and moving images captured by Richard Moss. Collaborator Ben Frost's soundscapes and soundtrack can be heard throughout the exhibit, including in that 75-minute film. Frost also contributed a sculpture that has to be seen and heard in person. Among the Petals uses a PA system owned by the Momentary to distribute sound throughout one of the Momentary galleries. The speakers are the kind seen at the edges of big concert stages. A column of such speakers stacked uniformly is called a line array. So ubiquitous at big concerts, these speakers are hardly noticed anymore. But Frost Sculpture deconstructs that neat stack and turns them into a spiral staircase of sound, reaching from floor to ceiling. Among the pedals is a mix of surprise, sound, and visual awe that can create goosebumps at first introduction. Look, I actually don't know any other way to make work. Um, I feel like that's kind of, that's part of the job is kind of following the goosebumps you know it's it's following that 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 visceral kind of reaction in my own body to what's going on um and just trusting that that's translating to an audience um but you know at at at, at the heart of what it is i do is a f kind of fascination with sound um and with this particular piece i mean you know putting aside the uh I suppose the, you know, perhaps more what the piece is about in an emotional sense or even in a sort of ecological sense. Um, the thing that's really lying at the heart of it is just a, is a utter fascination with this idea that sound can actually be uh, bent through space. You know, that it's, it's being transmitted along this line of speakers. Um, you know, that, that the way we perceive sound and sound within space uh, is... It's a, it's a kind of a, it's a miracle actually to, 
the, the way the human ear operates. Um, for example, I mean, this, this piece is a, a 22-channel line array. They're helixing through the space, and so all of the speakers are pointing at wildly different directions. Then beyond Ben Frost Sculpture is another gallery you don't expect to find in the momentary. Artist David Brooks is the creator of the quiet, living work, Lonely Lower Caride. You'll see um, a set of stadium bleachers with uh, these um, fish tanks on them. And in there are, are living fish. These are species of fish, part of a larger family called the Lower Caride, which is a family of fish, um, specifically from Amazon Basin. I've been working since 2005 with a group of um, ichthyologists and conservation biologists throughout various river systems uh, throughout the Amazon Basin. And um, in the, uh, we're working primarily in areas where there are um, hydroelectric dams being built, artisanal gold mining operations. Um, these are kind of two of the elements as well as uh, fossil fuel extraction that kind of really are the um, elements that threaten these river systems. One of the ways that conservationists really can set aside or move NGO dollars to actually conserve areas, including rivers and forests, um, both, is that you have to taxonomically describe what's actually there. You can't just say that's biodiverse, you have to say what actually is in there. So a big effort that um, biologists um, have to do is like, is that really describe species. So what you'll see in here are fish that are unknown to science, they're not yet described. Um, but because it's a family of fish that is so incredibly biodiverse, it really challenges science itself. The fish included in the work are the kinds that are often harvested for an international aquarium trade. The fish in this exhibit were procured from that trade. Enduring Amazon concludes with a work whose co-creator says is a way to finish with a slight tone change. So hopefully you notice a slight mood shift as you walked into this space. So yeah, as Lee said, this piece was commissioned for this exhibition as a coda, as a kind of way to kind of collect yourself um, after a lot of the intensity out there. Edward Morris created the installation A Prophecy of Butterflies with his wife and creative partner, Susanna Saylor. The work uses the entirety of a gallery to surround patrons with a rainbow of animated butterflies. The artist did field work in the Amazon rainforest, and he says the myriad species of butterflies living there serve as an unofficial mascot or emblem of the region. When you're in the Amazon, if you've ever been to the Amazon or a place like it, and you're walking around in the Amazon, you get the sense gradually that the forest itself is its own being. It's like its own entity. And you're kind of like alien to that entity. So how do you represent this being called the Amazon forest? And like any being, you know, sure, it has its, its nightmares, its injuries, but it also must have a dreamscape. Um, and so we thought to ourselves, what would the Amazon's sort of dreamscape, how would it convey its dreamscape to us? And what if it used the vocabulary of butterflies to do that? Um, so that's the kind of premise of this piece. And because we're in an art museum, the butterflies endeavor to use the language of art history. So there's some, some art historical references in here. The animated butterflies, the fish, the photographs, sounds, and film included in Enduring Amazon Life and Afterlife in the Amazon Rainforest can be seen at the Momentary in downtown Bentonville through April 14th. This is Ozarks at Large. Recent research indicates consistent good sleep is important for our health. 
And people struggling with insomnia often try to compensate for a bad night's rest with quick remedies like an afternoon nap or going to bed early the next night. Ivan Vargas, assistant professor of psychological science at the University of Arkansas, says there are better ways to address insomnia. In the long term, it's not great for insomnia because what it's doing is it's decreasing that sleep pressure when it's time to go to bed. And so, so the idea behind sleep restriction therapy is to try to maximize the amount of sleep pressure at night when we're trying to go to bed with the goal of trying to make us more efficient sleepers. You can hear more about sleep research from Ivan Vargas in this month's Short Talks from the Hill, a research podcast from the University of Arkansas. You can listen at KUAF.com, arkansasresearch.uark.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas continues an exploration of health care in the region. Host Randy Wilburn invited Shannon Hendricks, the Senior Vice President and Chief Administrator at Children's Hospital Northwest, to KUAF's Furman Garner Performance Studio for a conversation. A native Arkansan, she began her career in the medical field as a registered dietitian. She told Randy that while many people are aware of Children's Hospital's emergency room and primary care services, Children's Northwest has expanded other services since opening. I would say outside of our emergency department and primary care is our surgical services. Okay. So we perform a lot of same-day surgeries, so ear tube, simple procedures that dental cases that can be done again same day yeah. and patients can go home. So that's a service that we have focused on recently and continue to grow. And one of the things from a system perspective that we're working on are patients that are in this region, like say in our 15 county region, giving them the option if they have previously been seen at Little Rock, but they live here now or would like to get their surgery closer to home. We try to arrange that to happen based on what type of surgical procedure it is. If we have the right resources, we actually do have physicians that travel up from Little Rock. So for some of our patients that have previously had to travel We coordinate those visits so they're able to, again, stay close to home and be able to not only have their surgical visits or surgical procedures, but have their follow-up visits here. So So it's like, so really, even, so Little Rock, and even though they're two separate names, they're really, it's one organization, right? Yes, we are are one team, one system. Okay, And, and if ever there's a situation where whoever that particular patient is needs something that's out of Little Rock, you will facilitate that for we them. We can. And so we are from a, we'll talk about trauma designation. So there's different levels. So level one is the highest level. So Arkansas Children's in Little Rock, they are a level one trauma center. We are a level four. So say if we were to get a patient in we that needed a higher level of care, we would stabilize that patient and then either utilize our Angel One team or mm-hmm. our ground ambulance service to transfer them to Little Rock. Okay, so, I got you. Yes. So, and then, and, so trauma, like in terms of how do you determine that a facility has level one versus level four? Is it based on access to certain types of expertise? So there's a, it's a state designation by okay. our, there's an Arkansas trauma system. Mm-hmm. So there are certain guidelines for each level based on the size of your facility, what services you offer, what resources you have. And so for us, since we're a relatively smaller facility, we're designated as level four. I got you. Whereas Arkansas Children's Literoc, so they have a pediatric intensive care unit. Oh, okay. Just a higher higher level of care. Yeah. So that's what's so great about us, again, functioning as a system. 
is if there are kids, again, that are hurt or need a higher level of care, they can, you know, become stabilized here and then we can transfer, transfer them for them a higher there. level of care. Yeah. I got you. Okay. So when it comes to, I mean, can you like kind of talk about, I mean, because again, you guys have, are, are three years old, but you've expanded uh, five years old. I'm sorry. I don't know why. No, you said because you've been, I've here, been three here three years. years. Yes. Yes. So five yes. years old. Yeah. Yeah. So can you kind of expand upon some of the accomplishments that you've seen, even just in your your tenure in the last three years that speak to kind of what is to come for Children's Hospital here in Northwest Arkansas? I, I, there's a couple of things. One, I would say our safety journey. For us as an organization, we have four core values, safety, teamwork, compassion, and excellence. Safety, of course, being number one. And one of the things that as an organization, we prioritize the safety of not only our patients and our families, but also our team members. So each morning we have a safety huddle where we discuss just different things within the organization. If there is a patient event that happens, we discuss that in, in learnings from that. But one of the things that I'm most proud of is Arkansas Children's Northwest. We have gone more than two years without a serious safety event. Wow. And um, Marcy Doderer, who's our uh, CEO, she sits on a Solutions for Patient Safety, a national safety organization. And she has said that as far as she knows, there's not another organization around the country that has gone that long without a, a serious safety event. In the healthcare so, space. In the healthcare, yeah, yeah okay. pediatric space. So I think that speaks volumes to the dedication and commitment of our team to keeping our patients and families safe. I think other kind of growth initiatives or accomplishments. You know, we opened our doors five years ago, right before COVID. <laughs> and then COVID happened. Timing was everything. Yes, right? timing was everything. <laughs> and just not really sure how we would rebound from COVID. But the, of course, the demand is here. You know, the population is growing in Northwest Arkansas. We've seen double digit growth every year um, yeah. we've opened and that continues to, that arrow continues to project forward. And so whenever we first built ACNW, we knew at that point that we would have to expand at some point. Little did we know that we would be embarking on that journey five years in. So we just recently announced a huge expansion project across our system. For us here in Northwest Arkansas, it will be an $82 million project. It'll be a, about 80,000 square foot addition to our hospital. It will allow us to expand the services that we provide to the patients and families in this area. So we'll expand our inpatient capacity, our surgical capacity, our ancillary services. And if you notice, there's a children's health and wellness building across the street from the hospital. Currently, our primary care offices are there, and we'll be expanding in that area as well. Shannon Hendricks is the Senior Vice President and Chief Administrator at Children's Hospital Northwest, located in Springdale. Her entire conversation with host Randy Wilburn can be heard on the latest episode of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast that you can find wherever you prefer to find podcasts. You can also find it at KUAF.com and at IamNorthwestArkansas.com. Randy Wilburn will continue to discuss healthcare in the region on future editions of the podcast. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the health impact of a rural school district moving to a four-day school week. If you've got a bunch of kids who are not as mentally healthy as they should be, 
that's going to have a direct effect on the adults that are in the building sharing the room with them, just like it would if someone had COVID, just like it would if someone had the flu or a stomach bug. So if there's a stomach bug going through our building, we take all these precautionary measures to go through and try to make sure that nobody gets it. We spray down desks and we spray down hallways and we all run around here and do the best we can with our hand sanitizer. But if there is a group of kids who are not mentally healthy, there doesn't seem to be a lot of action being taken. That story and more on a Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large. KUAF's Daily Word Game is a five-letter puzzle available to play right now, as in T-O-D-A-Y. Ugh. Okay. You might get the word if you listen to the Ozarks at Large A-U-D-I-O. Okay, okay. Maybe it's because I forgot to remind you that you can play the game at kwaf.com or by subscribing to the Ozarks at Large newsletter that shows up in your email, I-N-B-O-X. Well, maybe you'll have better luck than me. Go try your luck today. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich and Randy Wilburn. Additional help from the news team at Little Rock Public Radio. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. If you ever miss a daily edition of our show, or perhaps you join in on the radio edition late, you can always catch up on our website, ozarksatlarge.com. There you will find links to all of the individual stories, a link to subscribe to our newsletter that lands in your email inbox every weekday morning, and ways to subscribe to the free Ozarks at Large podcast. That is at ozarksatlarge.com. Arkansas Razorback women's basketball team now 5-0. and They won last night in Bud Walton Arena, defeated uh, Central Arkansas. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, glad we've got some teams that are easy to root for right now. Meaning? Well, it's hard to root for the football team. It's easy to root for them? <laughs> Come on! Hey, I went to the football game uh, last Saturday. Yes. yes. It, was, it, it was fun. My niece is in the band, plays cymbals, and... Uh, it was a good time. Yeah. If nothing else, the the marching band halftime shows are always, always top notch. Yes. And um, the beers are not as expensive as I thought they might be. There you go. That's an added plus, too. Yes. Did you know that uh, Ozarks at Large intern Vic Hernandez is in the marching band? I did know that. Uh, senior. She is a, uh, a clarinet player. Got introduced at the game for senior right. band night Saturday night. That's right. I cheered for her. Good. Yes. All right. You're out tomorrow. That's I'm true. here. That sounds good. Okay. Well, we will, uh, Kyle, we'll see you tomorrow. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. Arkansas Treasures is a new show from Arkansas PBS, highlighting collectibles and antiques found throughout the state. More information about the stories behind these treasures and how to watch, available at the Arkansas PBS website.